0: If you believe that the people on your side are honest brokers of information, you've missed the most important technological change that's happened recently. And it was sort of a subtle thing. People didn't notice. But the moment we could measure with certainty who was clicking on what link, the old business model of telling you what was really happening was dead. Because it was pretty obvious early on that the news that people clicked on were the things that weren't true, the things that make your hair set on fire. It's like, we think the president is actually a reincarnated Hitler or whatever it is. You know, that's what you're going to get the click for. So from that point forward, the people working for corporations that have to produce profits for their shareholders didn't really have a choice because if they had just stuck to the straight news, they'd already be on the business. So pretty much everybody had to ratchet up the, the temperature.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. This gentleman is one of our rare repeat guests. In fact, his original interview with me is the most downloaded episode of all time in the history of the Thought Leader Revolution podcast. He is probably the smartest person that I've ever interviewed. He writes these amazing, thought-provoking books, and he has a brand new book out right now called Loser Think. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only legendary creator of the Dilbert comic strip, Scott Adams. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me, but you,
0: but you need to lower people's expectations. <laughs> uh, it's so hard to go into that with that with that framing. All right, got to be the smartest person you know. Go, hey
1: <laughs> Scott, I'm speaking from the heart. It's I've interviewed a lot of people and a lot of very brilliant people, but I, I tell you something, you're 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 fantastic. So, first of all, thank you for writing this incredible new book and sending me a review copy. I, I've really been enjoying it. What made you decide that this was the book that the world needed from you right now? Well, I spend a lot of
0: time on Twitter, so you should feel sorry for me, but most of it's arguing with people on politics and that sort of thing. And what I notice is that when people had pretty good arguments, even if I didn't agree with them, I would click on the profile and they had certain kinds of professions. So it would be lawyers and economists and scientists, And when people disagreed with me with horrible thinking, the type where you say, what's wrong with your brain? I would click on them. It would often be uh, writers, journalists, uh, poets, and musicians. And I thought, is that just a coincidence? And I realized that I've had a lot of experience in a lot of different domains. I've studied economics in school. I've got an MBA. I worked in corporate America for years in a variety of jobs. And you pick up ways of thinking in each of those domains that some people just haven't been exposed to. So when it looks like, well, maybe somebody's uninformed or dumb, it's really probably in many cases they just haven't been exposed to good thinking techniques. So I tried to put all that in the book, Loser Think. And loser think refers to the using the bad techniques. Can I give you one example? Please. So just to give you an example of how, how simple it is, I like to use the, the example of sunk costs. Now, if you'd never heard of that, you would think that maybe if you've invested a bunch of money in a project and that money's already gone, but you say to yourself, well, I don't want to waste all the money that I've already spent, so I better double down and, and keep investing. Now, an economist would say, whoa, 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 that's exactly wrong because the money you've already spent is gone. You can't get it back. So you should make a decision today as if you were starting today and you'd never invested in anything. Would you, would you keep investing from this point? Now, once people hear that, it, the, as soon as you hear it, you don't have to you know, become an economist to understand it. The first time you hear it, you say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That money's already gone. So I try to take all these little simple uh, blind spots that people have and, and just shine a light on them in the book.
1: And you've done a brilliant job. Of it, Scott. You know, it's it, it's a very interesting point that you made at the start of the interview. Thinking right now is a bit of a lost art. A lot of people live inside of bubbles. And you, you bring this point up in your book. They live inside of these bubbles that are a little bit like echo chambers, right? There's confirmation bias. They hear what they want to hear. They accept what they want to accept. They don't engage in critical thinking. And that's a real problem for our society. And that's one of the things you expand upon in the book. Could you comment on that for a bit? Yeah,
0: the biggest problem at the moment and a growing problem is that people are only consuming the news that agrees with them. So the people on the left are watching CNN and MSNBC, the people on the right are watching Fox News, reading Breitbart maybe. And you can you can spot those people on on either side because they're actually not even aware of the counter argument. So they often think they have an opinion based on the facts, but they actually haven't even heard what the other side is saying. And so I recommend that one of the things you do to get out of your bubble is make sure you're sampling the other side, because if you're not hearing what the other side says, you're not really understanding the issue. And and then I go beyond that and say that if you see news as facts reported differently on the left and the right, you should discount it. Because if they don't both say it's true, there's a really good chance it's not. You know, if there's a hurricane, they both say there's a hurricane. You better pack, pack your bags. But if one person says, well, I looked at this transcript and there's clearly a crime, and another person looked at it in the other news and says, well, we looked at it, we don't see anything there, then you should be skeptical that there's anything there.
1: You know, that, that's a very good point. But I think it also – points to a broader problem in society, and that is that people just don't take the time to actually think issues through anymore. They outsource their thinking to people who they consider to be trusted sources just on the uh, strength of the fact that they share the same worldview. And I think that's one of the things that a book like yours can help be an antidote to. Yeah, that's a perfect description of the
0: problem. Because if you believe that the people on your side are honest brokers of information, you've missed the most important technological change that's happened recently. And it was sort of a subtle thing. People didn't notice. But the moment we could measure with certainty who was clicking on what link, the old business model of telling you what was really happening was dead. Because it was pretty obvious early on that the news that people clicked on Were the things that weren't true, the things that make your hair set on fire. It's like we think the president is actually a reincarnated Hitler or whatever it is. You know, that's what you're going to get the click for. So from that point forward, the people working for corporations that have to produce profits for their shareholders didn't really have a choice because if they had just stuck to the straight news, they'd already be out of business. So pretty much everybody had to ratchet up the the temperature. So that what you're seeing from your own team is nothing even close to the truth except by coincidence.
1: And that's very sad because it makes it more difficult for us to sift through what is real and what isn't real. But there's a point you made in your book that I really like a lot. And that is that you know you believe that mockery is a very powerful way to help shift bad behavior. And you give the example of Elon Musk and a memo that he wrote to his employees at Tesla, right? And I'm just quoting from your book here, if you don't mind. Elon Musk's rule number six, in general, always pick common sense as your guide if following a company rule is obviously ridiculous in a particular situation such that it would make for a great Dilbert cartoon, i.e. Dilbert would mock (laughs) Tesla's policies, then the rules should change. I thought that was very perceptive and insightful. Would you mind expanding on that for a bit? Yeah, and part of
0: the power of that is that the word Dilbert became a sort of a social common language. Everybody knows what a Dilbert situation is, without hearing a thousand examples. You just sort of know it when you see it. It's like, oh, there it is. That's a Dilbert situation. So by creating the word loser think and then attaching to it lots of different examples, uh, I'm making something more mockable. So you're seeing online already since the book just came out just a few days ago. That people are already saying things such as, "Oh, there's loser think in the in the hearings." There's loser think in the news. There's, and and they'll give the examples. So mockery is very powerful. And if you can reduce the mockery to a, a word or a phrase, then you've weaponized it further. And that's what I tried to do, because the more you can mock the bad thinking styles and abuse, the better off we are.
1: Well, I'd like to. Give you an example of something that's happening here in canada we canadians are big fans of hockey and we've had a show that's been going on for 50 60 years it's called hockey night in canada it, it, it's been on every saturday night since i think the mid-50s And there's been a gentleman who has been an icon on the show. His name's Don Cherry. He happens to be uh, sort of a right-wing guy, uh, a guy who doesn't suffer fools gladly, doesn't censor himself, is not very politically correct. And over the weekend, he made a statement, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but the statement was something along the lines of, hey, if, if you're new to Canada and you're not wearing a poppy, you should be wearing a poppy because a poppy is a symbol that says you respect the sacrifice made by Canadians who fought World War I and World War II. And and wearing the poppy comes from the killing fields of World War I when so many Canadians died uh, in, in Flanders and in other parts of France, defending what they considered to be freedom at the time, right? So... When he said it, it wasn't very controversial. But then the social justice warrior mob jumped all over it and said, he's a racist, he's going after immigrants. And his employers agreed. They caved immediately and they said, oh my God, we don't agree with what uh, Don said. This is racist behavior. And they fired him. They fired a man who's been on that show for 38 years. Now, I've read the statement. I'm an immigrant myself to Canada. I come from the Middle East. And when I read that statement, It wasn't objectionable to me. It's like he's telling people who are new to the country, who may not know this, hey, this is a good idea for you to do. Now, he did it in his own inimical style with a lot of passion and energy. But to me, it didn't strike me as, as being something that's racist, et cetera. But I've seen people on Facebook posting that they considered it to be, if not racist, at least insensitive. And when I read your book, I thought, wow, I'm not right. They're not right. We can't know what Don Cherry thought. And this is a perfect example of loser thinking action, isn't it?
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the main things I talk about is the mind reader illusion, the 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 thought that we can know what somebody's intentions are uh, by looking at maybe what they said or what their their actions were. Now, sometimes you can if it's you know if somebody's hungry, you, you can tell because they ate. But for anything complicated, we're terrible at it. And as evidence of how bad we are at reading minds, I give you every relationship you've ever been in, because (laughs) you you know that you don't know what your partner's thinking, she or he does not know what you're thinking, but you sure think you do. And that's where most of your problems happen in your relationships, There's somebody imagining that you have less respect for them, imagining that you didn't care about their feelings, imagining that you're... You're too interested in someone else. It's all imagination. So we know how bad people are at it from our personal experience. But still, we look at the news and we say, oh, that stranger who lives a thousand miles away and I've never talked to, never met in my life. I'm pretty sure I know what that guy's thinking. And we're just bad at that. So what I recommend is that instead of building a society where we punish people for their presumed thoughts, which is not a world you want to live in. You, you don't want to live in a world where I can get you punished because I've said what you're thinking, even though you're, you haven't said that. So that's what happened to him. Uh, we cannot assume that it was good or bad. We just don't know. And that's not a good reason for punishing anybody. But by the way, the way you told the story, I don't know the details, but the way you told the story sounded more like helpful advice to actually – give immigrants a leg up for assimilation, which I would imagine they would want. So I, I don't I don't even understand the story, but perhaps I've missed some of the context.
1: Well, if you go online, it's all over the news. Even Breitbart's reported on it, um, and, and, and you can look into it. But that's exactly how I took it. Now, that's my own confirmation bias because I happen to like the guy, and I, I like the way he does what he does. But I, I can tell you on Facebook, people that I know, love, and trust Took it completely the opposite way, like he was insensitive at best and a vile racist at worst. And and how it occurred to me, and again, reading your book, I can see that that's maybe myself engaging in a little bit of loser think. Was this is just a guy trying to to tell people what the right way to do things is? Now he's doing it in a bit of a a, a tough way. You know, he's saying you should do this, but. It's just good advice that any new immigrant, new person in any new country would want to know how to do this sort of thing to fit in better. That's how I saw it.
0: Yeah. Was was there any point in which he clarified?
1: Uh, I imagine he was asked to clarify. Did he do that? He was asked to clarify only after he was fired. So he didn't clarify it on the air, but he has clarified it since. And he said he really meant to say that every Canadian should wear the poppy and not just new Canadians. But, you know, in the moment, that's how it came out. And uh, he said he doesn't have a racist bone in his body, which I believe. And uh, he really just wanted to honor the veterans and the troops. So one of the one of the rules I put in loser think is
0: that sometimes you have to introduce new rules of manners because the situation changes. For example, we didn't always need a rule that you shouldn't use your cell phone in the movie theater until cell phones. So sometimes things. Suggest you need a new rule, and one of the new rules I think we need because of all this, you know, pitchforks and uh, torches that we see on social media is I think everybody should have 48 hours from the moment that somebody that they're aware that somebody's calling them out for something inappropriate. They should have 48 hours to either apologize or clarify, assuming the clarification would take the problem away. And then here's the tricky part. Here's the the part that's a little harder to sell, but I think it's a better world if we do it. After the apology, assuming it's a good one, or the clarification, assuming that it, it really does take the problem away, you should not then mind read and say they don't mean it. It, it, that's not the world you want to live in. You want to live in a world where even if you think they didn't mean it, you still accept the clarification. You still accept the apology because we should be judging people by their actions. And the apology and or clarification is the action that the, the, a person is asked to do something, to take the temperature down, to make people feel better, to clarify. If the person does that, it is not good manners in my way of thinking and not a good way to live to say, well, I don't believe it. I think we should accept it and move on. If you can get people to even say the right stuff, we live in a good world. If you, if you can get them to act right, we live in a good world. But if you're going to say, yeah, you're, you're acting right and you're saying the right things, but I think you're thinking the wrong things, you don't want that standard applied to you. So let's not apply it to
1: anybody else. No, in fact, that standard is the kind of standard that's applied in a dystopian world like Animal Farm or Nineteen Eighty-Four. Quite frankly,
0: um, yeah, nothing good can come from it. And I think once once I frame it that way, and and people realize, okay, I would not want to live in the world I'm
1: trying to create. You should it should check your actions a little bit. Scott, you've done a public service by writing this book, and it's my hope and my vision that this becomes one of the biggest books of the last 20 years, and that millions of people read it because it's so important that good people, people of goodwill, understand what's happening in our culture, what's happening in our society, and they start to use the power of this awesome phrase, loser think, on those that seek to divide us. And they, they, they don't allow themselves to be sucked into that. Because I got to tell you, I've been sucked into that. I've been sucked into social media fights with people whose opinions I disagree with. And all that does is add to the sum total of hatred and evil in the world from my perspective. So I want to thank you for writing this book. And I want to see this book go to the widest possible audience yeah,
0: thank you for that. You know the analogy I like to use to make this you know really clear what the what the point of the book is is you know that our physical state is really driving our emotional state. And in, in the case of everything in politics, everything that's you know in the the social justice world, the the business model of the press, where the most provocative things get the most attention, has sort of driven up all of our temperatures. It's making us, hungry and tired in effect, you know, emotionally. uh, And therefore, little things look like big things. Things that just wouldn't have bothered us yesterday are now the biggest problem of the world, and it's artificial. Once you realize that you're artificially mad and that the business model of the press and that one little technological change that you could measure what gets the most clicks and who's clicking... That's what's driving your attitude. It's not because the thing is making you that mad. It's not the thing. It's your body.
1: That's such a powerful insight. You know, And there's another point you make in the book with which I wholeheartedly agree is that we actually are living in one of the greatest times, if not the best time in all of recorded human history. Let's look at the economy right now in in North America. Under the leadership of of President Trump, who's an actual businessman who's created jobs and, and grown enterprises, the American economy is doing the best it's done in 50, 60 years. Unemployment is at one of the lowest points in history, and unemployment for minorities and women is at the lowest point in history. I mean, it's a fantastic time to be alive. It's a fantastic time to be able to make all your dreams come true. Yet, you wouldn't know it from reading the various partisans in the left and the right in the news media.
0: Yeah, the way I like to frame that is it always ends up between a fight between, oh, it's Obama's economy or it's Trump's economy. Now, if you've studied economics, as I have, and I've got an MBA from a top business school, the way I look at it is this, that Obama was helping us off the bottom. Yeah, you know, the, the whole financial world was at the brink of collapse. He was actually a really good personality to have in that job because people thought, oh, he's a a reasonable looks at the facts, not rash. That's the guy you want when you've got one foot off the cliff. You want the one who's confident, calm, just goes about the business, tells you everything's going to be okay. And he got really big gains. Unemployment was you know reduced. The economy was good. But then people take that the next step, which is unwarranted, which is to say, therefore, the good economy is really what Obama got going and Trump just got a lucky break to come in when things were at their best. But if you're an economist, you would look at it a little bit deeper and you'd say, how how easy is it to put people back to work when the people who are out of work are fully trained? The only reason they lost their job is that the economy itself went down. Well, those are the easiest ones to put back to work. Once you get to President Trump territory, where you're 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 at four percent, and now I guess we're down to three point something. Those are the people who are hard to employ. If you're getting them employed, you've taken it to a new level. I mean, that's that's a whole new uh, level of challenge. So uh, I give uh, Obama full credit for taking us back from the brink, and. Uh, putting the economy on strong footing but you have to also say that trump did something that probably couldn't have been done by the same personality that obama had you needed a cheerleader somebody to say okay and this is something trump understands maybe better than anybody which is the economy is a psychology machine if you mm-hmm. if you convince people it's going to be better tomorrow Then today, people invest because they want to get in on it. Businesses say, yeah, going to be great tomorrow. Better invest now. All those customers are going to be ready. So psychology drives the economy. And Trump said directly, and then he performed it right in front of us, that he would be the biggest cheerleader for the economy. And of course, he does real things. He cut taxes. he, He cut regulations. But honestly, we don't know how much difference those things made. But on the psychology, it was amazing. Because people said, yes, he says the economy is going to get better. He did some things that look reasonable to me, less regulations, lower taxes. I think it's working. And then the more it works, the more he takes credit for it, the more people think it's still working. So he's created a a situation that I think historians are going to say, we've never seen it done that well. But again, the important point is if you reversed jobs and you put Trump at the bottom of the economy where Obama was and vice versa, I don't think either of them would have performed as well because their personalities were perfectly suited for for their time.
1: You know, that's fascinating, and that's a very insightful comment. I I never looked at it that way, but the time when uh, the economy crashed back in 2008, having someone like Obama be in place – definitely at least gave the people who felt scared the belief that, hey, we've elected the first black president, anything's possible, this can be turned around. And I can see how the psychology of that would be important. But when it came time to revving things up, you needed a showman, you needed a salesman, you needed an Uber marketer like Donald Trump to do that. And he's done a brilliant job of that. Yeah. uh,
0: He made the economy so strong that it allowed him to take on China. So he created an opportunity that simply didn't exist and we wouldn't have probably done it if our economy had been weaker. So I'm pretty sure that if he quit tomorrow, historians would someday, after the temperature goes down and they can look at things objectively, I'm sure this will be the most successful presidency and probably by far.
1: I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'm a bit of a historian. I studied uh, that in, in university. I went to uh, the top university in Canada for my undergrad, and I, and I got my master's degree at Georgetown University at Washington, D.C., all in the area of history, Cold War, international politics, and economics. And I remember the late 80s and the early 90s uh, and all the wonderful things Ronald Reagan had done to grow the American economy and defeat Soviet communism. And I always looked at Ronald Reagan as being the most successful president of the last 100 years. But I think Donald Trump is nipping at his heels right now. Yeah, that's exactly the
0: right comparison. Now, of course, it's always hard to compare presidents across time. One of the things I talk about in the book As if you're an economist or a scientist, you've probably learned how to make proper comparisons. But if you were to ask the person on the street, is this president or that president, doesn't matter which one, are they doing a good job? Most people would say definitely yes or definitely no. But both of those opinions are absurd because you're not comparing it to anything. Because there is no president doing the same job as Trump at the same time under the same conditions. There's nothing to compare it to. No scientist would say you've, you've learned anything. All we know is what one person did. We don't know what another person would have done. And would it have been better? Would it have been worse? We don't know. That would just be a guess. So if you say to an economist, who's doing the best job? If the first thing that comes out of their mouth isn't compared to what – then they're not really an economist
1: because that's pretty much the most basic thing you learn. That's very true. That's very true. Well said. So Scott, you brought up China. And and if you don't mind, I'd like to delve into China a little bit because I think the way that Trump is dealing with China is perhaps one of the most disruptive elements of his presidency. And I think he has been brilliant at playing, you know, 3D chess with the Chinese. They've never encountered an American leader or a Western leader like him before. What are your thoughts on how Trump is dealing with the Chinese and how he's using, I know maybe we're going back to your previous book, Winning Bigly, his persuasion stack so effectively with them?
0: Yeah, this is another case in which one of Trump's best features is considered a bug by the other team. So one of his features is, and he says this directly, he tells us exactly what he's going to do, and then he does it. And he says, I'm going to be super tough with China and Russia, for example, but at the same time, and North Korea, but at the same time, I'm going to be civil and friendly and respectful to their leaders. Now, if you would say to me, all right, Scott, describe the perfect way to deal with our frenemies or enemies, you know, the people who we've got some uh, real danger but we don't want to make it worse well the first thing you're going to do is not make it personal the first thing you're going to do is make sure you have some kind of credible communication you don't want them to take it personally you don't want the leader to say oh god I'd really like to work with these guys but I'll be embarrassed if I let this guy you know bowl me over like this so he's created the very best situation he calls it setting the table for something good to happen now is it possible for kim jong-un to compromise with the united states now now that you know trump has made that opening yes we don't know if it'll happen but he's he's set the table exactly right kim jong-un could do something that would look like a little bit of a compromise without it becoming a giant problem uh, on his end and likewise the russians and the chinese so his setting the table, and which he writes about directly in, in the Art of the Deal. Done, none of this is me speculating. He talks about all of this, is by far the very best thing to do. But of course, his political enemies will just say, wait a minute, he's cozying up to a dictator. He's cozying up. And that's just stupid because you don't you know you you don't negotiate peace with your friends. You negotiate peace with your enemies. The people you need to talk to the most are the people you've got the biggest risk with. And he's created a situation where apparently he has no problem whatsoever sanctioning the the heck out of China while being super nice to President Xi. I can't think of a safer, more productive way to
1: approach that. That's amazing, Scott. And, you know, it reminds me of... Ronald Reagan back in the late 80s when he was negotiating with Mikhail Gorbachev. Reagan created a bunch of treaties, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty of that time and also the INF uh, Treaty where he basically decided to get rid of a whole class of nuclear uh, arms, right? And I remember at the time, many of his allies on the right started calling him crazy and an idiot for doing that because they thought that he was being duped by the Russians. But Reagan saw something they didn't see and he ended up being right. Isn't that the case? <laughs> Yeah.
0: You know, and the example I like to use, the Reagan example is perfect. Uh, you, you're right. He, he was friendly to Gorbachev at the same time. Uh, it was quite clear he would be willing to wipe out his country if he needed to. <laughs> the best example of that was politician Willie Brown. He was a local California politician, very famous. Sure, very successful. Sure. And he was once challenged when he was in office for accepting money from tobacco companies, at the same time some big vote about uh, smoking in public or inside or whatever was coming up, and somebody said, "Well, how can you, you know, be objective if you're taking all this money from the tobacco companies?" And Willie Brown said the smartest thing I've ever seen from a politician. He looked, he looked at the reporter and said, "If you if you can't take money from people and then turn around and screw them, you're in the wrong job." <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, you're re- rarely does somebody have a sentence that just ends a, co- a conversation completely. There's just nothing you can say after
1: that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, Willie Brown. I, I know about Willie Brown. He's, he's an interesting guy. He's uh, the fellow who gave Kamala Harris her start in politics, isn't he?
0: Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people on the right like to point that out and like to hold it against her. And I just can't go there because everybody takes the opening they have. Right. And everybody gets a different one. And so if somebody finds an opening and they take it, I say that's a person who knows how to succeed.
1: And I just don't hold that against them. You know what? I don't hold that against her either. But uh, uh, he's uh, definitely been one of the more colorful characters in American politics over the last 50 years. Yeah, and And it should be noted that nobody really rises
0: to the presidency unless they've got a lot of people backing them. So everybody's got somebody helping them.
1: That's the way it works. Absolutely, 100%. So, Scott, let's talk about one of the powerful examples you gave in the introduction to your book. And that's around the mass hysteria around global warming. You told the story of Seth MacFarlane and and how Seth MacFarlane has been an incredibly successful person in various aspects of the entertainment industry, both as a writer, an actor, a director, as well as a talk show host, and he's been brilliant in those regards, but when it comes to global warming, it's like he completely... Uh, outsources his thinking to a group of other people, and he does no critical thinking of his own. and And you made that example come alive in your book. Can you expand on that a
0: little bit? Yeah. So I use Seth MacFarlane as my example specifically because I regard him to be really, really smart. And the point of loser think is that it's not how smart you are; it might be just your exposure to different fields and different domains might give you a blind spot. So I speculate without without knowing too much about Seth MacFarlane, except all we know in public, that as smart as he is, he's probably never been a scientist, probably never worked in a big corporation, probably never did a financial projection. And those, some of those things I've done. So I, I've done financial projections for a living back in my earlier careers. And if, you're, if you have an experience with economics and financial projections, you know that they're all ridiculous uh, beyond a year. With climate change, we've got an 80-year official economic projection of what will happen. And if that's that's the bad news – in other words, to translate how bad the reality of the science is, to turn that into real life, you do an economic projection and say, okay, people will lose their jobs, X number of people will die from poverty or whatever – but it turns out that you can't really do an 80-year projection. That's ridiculous. And yet the scientific community is trying to sell that to us. Now, I do imagine that science has a really good grasp, this is just my opinion, on the basic science, that if you add CO2 to the atmosphere, all things being equal, probably gets warmer. That that to me seems really credible. And then when they take that and they build their projections of what the temperature will do, I say to myself, well... That's a pretty big range that they say, but it looks like it's going up. That's something I need to worry about. I don't think the projections are necessarily that accurate, but if it's going up, well, that's something to worry about. The next thing is where your credibility just falls apart, which is you turn it into an economic projection. And we can't we can't predict anything in 80 years. And and the projections that they made are actually positive, not negative. The official UN's uh, last projection is that in 80 years, our GDP could be as much as 10% less than it would have been otherwise. Now, if you're not an economist or if you've you know, not been in that domain at all, you'd say to yourself, wow, a 10% drop in GDP would be um, like half a recession. I mean, it would ha- or half a depression. It would look like one of the worst things that had ever happened to us, except it's in 80 years. At which point, through normal compounding and growth of the economy, our economy will be something like five to ten times bigger than it is now. And you wouldn't even notice, literally, you wouldn't even notice if it were 10% less than it could have been, which is what the projection is. So if you know a little bit about economics, the scary projections that it's the end of the world actually say the opposite. They say we won't notice. And then on top of that, you you have a lot of technological changes from uh, nuclear power, Generation 4 that eats nuclear waste and uh, doesn't have the same cost uh, and problems as regular nuclear. It can't melt down by its nature, by its design, it can't melt down. So those things were all on the drawing board. I mean, Bill Gates is trying to build one of those Generation 4 nuclear reactors right now through his power. One of his uh, startups he invested in was called TerraPower, and there are a bunch of others. So if you go 80 years in in the future, our whole sources of power will be different, probably something in the nuclear realm, probably better solar and wind as well. And you don't even need to know if climate change is the big problem that the scientists say or the lesser problem that the skeptics say. It doesn't matter because the, the path forward is actually the same either way. You need clean energy in abundant amount and something that works when it's not windy and it's dark. And nuclear power is the only thing that, that we know of that, that can do that. So not, not the old nuclear power, the old Generation 2 that actually were you know a little dangerous compared to modern designs. So But the new stuff is a whole different level of safety cost, uh, potentially cost, because they, they could commoditize it and standardize the design and then the, the price comes way down. Once they're building them safe so that the community doesn't have to worry about the meltdowns, don't have to worry about creating nuclear waste because it can actually eat nuclear waste that already exists as its fuel. Once the public gets that, then it's easier to place them, the the price goes down. And you don't even have to solve the question of whether climate change is real or not because technology is going to take care of it. And that doesn't even count the half dozen or so, probably more by now, startups that are building carbon scrubbing devices that'll suck the CO2 out of the air. And in some cases, turning that CO2 into products, you know, turning it into fuel, jet fuel, turning it into, I don't know, some kind of plastic stuff. So, you know, in 10 years, I don't know if all of that will be online, but in 20, you could pretty much guarantee that nuclear is a whole different look, and that we're scrubbing stuff out of the air with these scrubbers, and probably it's not the the risk that you think. And then you throw on top of that that the deaths from natural disasters have plummeted through history. From you know a tsunami in the old days would just you know just kill lots of people. Let's let's not use a tsunami because there's a more Surprise. But let's say a hurricane in the old days would really, really kill people and floods. Today, you could have a hurricane and and kill nobody in the United States if we were prepared and everybody got in their bunkers and stuff. So if you were to fast forward, what is the likely death and destruction from climate change, even if the projections are right, is probably less than today. And I don't think people quite grasp that the the risks will probably go down every year, even if climate
1: change gets worse. There's a lot you just said there. I want to unpack a bit of it. So the first thing you talked about was the whole imprecise nature of long-range projections, right? There's no way that you can actually make a projection 80 years out with any confidence. Like you, I've done financial projections. I used to write business plans for startups and for companies that were looking to raise rounds of financing. So I had to do one, three, five, and 10-year projections. But I knew, and the people that I worked with knew, and even the the folks that were evaluating the investment proposals knew, that any projection beyond one to three years was worthless, right? There could be so many variables, right, Scott? Yeah,
0: really the best a projection like that can do is tell you that something is possible. You know, if you do your numbers in every way you do it, it doesn't work. That tells you something. But if you do the numbers and it works, that just tells you it might work. That doesn't tell you much more than that. And anybody who's done the kind of work you've done, the kind of work I've done in that field, they all have the same opinion. There's nobody who's ever done a long-range financial projection who says, oh, yeah, I can do a 10-year projection. Just just give me that data. I can do that. There's nobody. Not one person on the entire planet who understands or has done this work would make that kind of a claim. And yet it's the claim that the UN
1: is trying to sell to us. It is. And someone like Seth MacFarlane, for example, who's a very bright guy, he he doesn't have the experience in thinking from this frame, which is why he's so uncritically buying these uh, so-called experts when they make these unbelievable long-range projections.
0: Yeah. And I, I would agree with him in the, the first part, which is if that many scientists are concerned, we should be just as concerned. But that's different from saying that we know what's going to happen in 80 years because there's something called the, the Adams Law of Slow-Moving Disasters. I named it after myself because I invented it. <laughs> I love it. And, and it's the idea that the things you have to worry about are the surprises. The things you don't usually have to worry about as much are something you can see coming from you know decades away. So we thought we'd have a population problem and everybody starved to death, but we figured out how to make more food. We thought we'd run out of oil, but we learned to frack. We, we learned to do other things. And I think this is no different. Uh, with the amount of energy and resources and practically unlimited funding going into making energy cleaner and better, uh, you shouldn't get bet against that. Because humanity has an unbroken record, at least in modern history, of solving these things when we can see them this far in advance.
1: That's very true. You know, I've been studying a uh, a thought leader by the name of David Goggins. Are you familiar with David Goggins? Not by name. I might know the thought, though. Go ahead. So David Goggins uh, was a Navy SEAL. And he's African-American. He grew up in horrific circumstances. I mean, if you go online and you watch some of his YouTube videos, you'll, you'll see a phenomenal story. And uh, he, he uses very salty language, right? Like he's, he, he's, he's he's a SEAL. He's a Navy guy. But he discovered something very powerful about himself at a certain point in his life. He discovered that he was going through life as a raw, exposed nerve that was ready to be acted upon to get offended, to feel bad, to feel like a victim. And there was a point in his life when he realized that's what he was doing that he said to himself, no more. I am not going to fight with the world anymore I'm going to fight the only battle that matters. And that's the battle that he calls me versus me. He went within on a daily basis and he took all those bad experiences and he did things to strengthen himself internally. And the vehicle he used was he used physical exercise and working out. So this was a guy who at one point felt so bad about himself that he ballooned in weight to almost 300 pounds. Then he decided he wanted to join the SEALs and they had a height and weight requirement and he was 107 pounds overweight. So he had three months to make it and in three months he lost 107 pounds. He went into the Navy SEAL program. He did did it three times. He went through three hell weeks in a year and... You know, at the final time, he actually got through and he he ended up becoming a Navy SEAL. And since then, he continuously, physically challenged himself, and he goes out there talking to people about how not to think like a loser, how to think like a winner, how to have your mind become stronger on a daily basis primarily by challenging yourself, by going within and having that daily battle of me versus me and coming out on the other side, victory. He seeks struggle. He seeks suffering, right? And what I like about David Goggins and why I think David Goggins' mentality really works well with some of the concepts you've advanced in loser think is that he found a way to not outsource his thinking anymore. He found a way to, to think for himself. And although he, he, he's a self-proclaimed idiot, you know he, he doesn't say he's an idiot anymore, but he was an idiot. And he learned how to start thinking and challenging himself, challenging his own assumptions on a daily basis. I like David Goggins because I think without knowing it, David Goggins is that very antithesis of loser think. What are your comments on what I'm sharing with you right now? Well, my my first comment is I would hate to be an enemy of the
0: United States and know that the people coming for you are are are, are guys like that. One hundred percent, brother. <laughs> I mean, just 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 the fact. I mean, he he was a Navy SEAL before he was a Navy SEAL. In my opinion, I mean, because yep. because he had the character and the the ability. Um, so I agree with all that. And in, in loser think, I talk about using your body to change your mind and that sounds like exactly what he did you you can manipulate where you are for example if you travel if you make yourself travel you move your body to another place and that will change your mind because you'll see you'll see a different perspective you can change the channel and see what's on the other station that's moving your body and that will end up changing your mind but likewise fitness exercise making sure you're good at something so you know what it's like to succeed, building good habits, using systems instead of goals. These are all things that you use the little executive part of your brain to move your body. And then in so, in so moving your body, you can see things more clearly. And so uh, that's just the best example I've ever heard, This the story you just told. So
1: thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. I I highly recommend you check out his work and check him out on YouTube. He wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. It's a fantastic book. So could you please explain the distinction you draw between systems versus goals? Because I read that in the book and I'm fascinated by it and I happen to agree with it. So a goal is something that used to be a good thing back when
0: life was simple. If you were a farmer and your goal was to clear 40 acres so you can plant next year, that was probably perfectly good because that next year would come and it was still a good idea. So you do it. But our environment is so complicated and changes so quickly that if you said, I'm going to work toward this goal of being, let's say, in two years, I'll be the best blockchain programmer. Well, in two years... That might be a great idea, but maybe something better than blockchain will come along and and you've gone in the wrong direction. So goals can limit you. They can make you silo your efforts, make you unaware of other opportunities. Whereas a system allows you to get ready for lots of opportunities because the environment is changing and it's serving up opportunities that you don't see coming. So if you build your skill stack, in other words, you layer on different skills, you can be ready for a whole bunch of things. I'll give you two concrete examples. So I became a cartoonist by practicing every day to, to draw and learning all the pieces and putting it together. But I'm a cartoonist because I'm reasonably good at several different things. I'm not great at anything. Um, I, I can draw well enough, barely. You know, I can write humor, but I'm not even the funniest person in the room sometimes. And I've got some business background, so I had some content, and I knew how to, how to run the operation. But I took that same systems idea when I went into periscoping. And I didn't know where it would go, but I knew that learning the skill of being on camera, talking for an hour, periscoping, would be good for me. And sure enough, it led to this book, Loser Think. It led to this interview. It It opened up a whole bunch of – essentially changed my career – But I had no goal when I started. I just had a system, which is I kept layering skills, and then I would scan the atmosphere and say, "Ha! my set of skills just coincidentally lined up with this opportunity that just popped up. And and in this case, the President Trump opportunity is what gave me a way to talk about persuasion, which is one of my skills. I'm a trained hypnotist. Uh, Combine it with my periscoping, and suddenly I've, I've got a book, and I'm influential, and a whole new domain. So always look to improve your odds for lots of things. Uh, having
1: goals is okay, but don't overdo it. I think that's absolutely brilliant, Scott. And um, I'm going to take something very powerful from this for myself and how I conduct my business. So I work with my lovely better half. Her name is Teresa, and she is a absolute – guru, genius, when it comes to uh, several things. One of them is when she was in her late 40s, just for the fact that she was a bit bored, and I'm being a bit facetious here, she decided she wanted to set a world record for running for 12 hours in a row on a treadmill, the greatest distance by a woman. And she she didn't do it one time. She did it three times, right? And I know, pretty crazy, right? Uh, I did the first hour, the first time with her, and uh, then I stopped. I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm tired. You go, girl. Well done. So the second thing she's really good at is she understands how to help people who run private wellness and health clinics. So folks like dentists, like chiropractors, like naturopaths, like physiotherapists, what have you. Anyone who runs a private... Health and wellness clinic. She really understands how to help them scale that clinic, and the reason is really simple. Most of the folks who own those things are really good at what they do, so they're good doctors, they're good naturopaths, they're good chiropractors, and what have you. But they're not necessarily good business people. They don't necessarily understand how to grow a practice, how to keep a good eye on on revenues and expenses, how to make sure that uh, accounts payable and accounts receivable are properly handled, how to hire the right people, how to create a great work culture. These are skills that she developed throughout her life and throughout working with these clinicians, right? And many of these folks don't have systems. And Teresa has been talking to me in terms of the work we're doing with these people about, hey, we need systems for these people. We need structures. If these people put systems in place, for example, a system to rejuvenate their old patients. So here's what happens in a lot of these clinics, Scott, is 85 to 90% of their patients stop coming back. So they keep needing to bring back new patients, right? But if they put into place what she calls a rejuvenation system, which you know is a complicated way of saying bringing old patients back, then they could make a lot of money. They could have a way bigger, more successful practice. And she's developed some systems that help these clinic owners bring back anywhere from 10 to up to 70% of their old patients, which is fantastic and amazing. But we haven't termed it in that fashion. And I think it's important for us to stop talking about the goals that we want to achieve for these people and start talking about systems as the way for them to truly have the type of practice they've always dreamed of having. So thank you.
0: And start small for those people who are just sort of introduced to this idea. Let, Let me give you the smallest system. I always will take my wallet and only put it in two places in my house. So if it comes out of my pocket, I will walk to one of those two places and only one of those two places, one on each floor. So that when I'm looking for it, I only have two places to look. So I, I don't have a goal of being on time. I have a, a variety of systems which guarantee that all the things I do, I do to get ready to leave the house are, are systemized. And I, even my wardrobe is only colors that all go together. I don't have any shirt that doesn't go with any pair of pants.
1: <laughs> wow. That's awesome. <laughs> that's good. I should probably do that myself because that's not the case for me. <laughs> awesome. So Scott, I'm really enjoying this interview. And uh, I know that that uh, you've got other interviews to do today because your book's just out, but I like to end off each and every single one of our episodes by asking you to give our listener your three best pieces of advice on how they can apply some of the things that you've been teaching us today uh, on this call to their life and to their business. What would you say those three would be? Well, there are
0: certain books which are really good. And um, I would recommend anything by Robert Cialdini that teaches you about influence and persuasion and my book win bigly and of course the the book the sound now loser think because those are really good get you in a good position to understand your world in a way you probably don't understand it and until you understand your world you're not really equipped to optimize it because you don't even know what it is those are the books that will teach you that um I would say that if you're locked in a political bubble, just make sure you're taking care of your fitness and your your health to take your temperature down. Make sure you're you're looking at uh, both sides of the news and uh, just understand the traps of loser think and also to build systems versus goals. Maybe that was a little more than three, but you
1: get the idea i get the idea i think that's that's those are really really good uh, suggestions for our people to take on into their life into their business and and i got to say i've gotten a ton out of this interview as, a, as i did the last time you came on my show there's a lot of things that i'm going to put into practice myself most especially the distinction between systems and goals, I'm going to start putting that into play, into my business and into my life. But we're going to make sure that we trumpet this for our clients, because I think it's important. It's going to be a complete game changer. It will transform the way they do business. It'll also transform their results. And I think that's what's important. So thank you for that, Scott. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Oh, it's been my pleasure, my friend. As I said, I, I, I'd love to have you back. Any excuse to have you back, I'll take it. Uh, uh, I really enjoy our conversations. So, listener, Scott's new book is called Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. I'm at a, on page 101 right now. And it's got to be one of the best books I've ever read. It, it's a brilliant treatise on how you can improve how you think, how you can strengthen your mindset, and how you can have a, a happier, more fulfilling life. And not only do I recommend that you pick up a copy for yourself because Christmas is coming, you should pick up copies of this book and gift it to your friends. And I'm going to do this, Scott. I'm going to buy 10 copies of this book myself. I'm going to hand these 10 copies to my best clients. And then I'm going to buy another six or seven. And I'm going to give it away as Christmas gifts to the people that I love the most. And I'm going to recommend them that they actually read this book they make it something that they put into their schedule and 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 go through because this book has the potential to completely change their life, to transform the way they think, and that's only going to make them happier. And in, in this day and age, Scott, when there's so many people that are stuck in bubbles of unproductive thinking and people that really love and care about each other but are in different camps politically or in other ways are are, are, are fighting and, and destroying relationships, this book can help stop that. So that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I recommend that you do, listener. So thank you for that, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So listener, you might be listening to this and going, Nikki, I I love that you have guests like Scott Adams on. I mean, this guy's incredible. But what's possible for me? Can I get my ideas out in the same way that Scott's getting them out? Can I have these ideas make an impact in the world and help me grow my impact, my influence, and my income? And my answer to that is 100% yes. And the best way for you to discover exactly how you can do that is to jump on a call with me. I've got a website, ecircleacademy.com, and in the top right-hand corner, there's a button called Book a Success Call. So all you gotta do is go to that button and book a success call. There's an application form there, and we're gonna read that before we finalize your booking just to make sure there's a good fit between us in terms of having this discussion. But once we've determined that there is, we'll finalize that appointment with you. And here's the best part, the call is absolutely free. There's no agenda here. I'm not gonna try to push anything on you listen, if we have a great call and we decide we want to keep talking and do things together, then we'll do that. But the purpose of this call is to help give you inspiration and belief and help you learn how you can do at the level that you're able to do the kinds of things that my great guest Scott Adams is doing, which is to take his genius, take his intellectual property and make a bigger impact in the world and and grow your business and, and, and do good things for yourself as well. Thanks again, Scott, for being on the show, my friend. It's been a total honor having you here. My pleasure, absolutely. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only Scott Adams and his new book, Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. Make sure you pick up a copy of this book for yourself. Make sure you pick up five to 10 copies to hand out to your clients, to your friends, and to the people that you care about the most. In fact, make a list right now of the five people you care about the most, the people who know are being afflicted with loser think and could benefit from the genius of the message of this book and go out there and buy this book for those five people. Let's get the word out. Let's help make this book the best-selling book of 2019 and 2020 in the non-fiction category. Let's make that happen. Let's be a part of that revolution with Scott. Until next time, goodbye.